New Year and welcome back to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. Honestly, every time I hear about a superhero movie being redone, I sigh. I mean, how many Spider-Man films do we really need? When I heard HBO, with the help of Damian Lindelof, was producing a show based on Alan Moore's comic Watchmen, I was not impressed. But boy, was I pleasantly surprised. Watchmen is not your typical superhero story. That is why we asked Cato's Julian Sanchez hey. and Matthew Feeney Hello. to join us today. So let's start with a softball question for you both. What, what sort of liberties do you think Lindelof took with the, the source material of Moore's original story? Like, what are the changes to the universe that someone who has read the graphic novel and the comics would immediately notice upon watching the series? You know, I don't know. I mean, so it's, it's of course, an original story set. 30 years later, uh, but, but in, in, in ways it's more faithful than the, the film. So, I mean, the, the Zack Snyder film, which, uh, I, I regard as unwatchably bad. I think I, I, think <laughs> I, I as, as a longtime fan of the comic, I kind of enjoyed it the first time in the theater kind of for the novelty, but it is sort of suffocatingly faithful in, in many ways in the sense that it doesn't really breathe as its own, Work except, um, you know, there are a series of changes. Uh, he makes like the the threat at the end that Ozymandias. And the, apologies to anyone listening who hasn't spoiler this <laughs> But I think I think we have to just sort of yeah. plow ahead and accept yeah. that there's going to be spoilers. Um, it's hard to talk about a show set 30 years later without spoiling the uh, the, the the comic it's based on. Um, and the show itself really. I think kind of takes for granted that you um, are familiar with the source material. Um, you know, so he changes the nature of the, the giant squid at the end and turns that into something else. Um, uh, so in, in a sense, this, this sticks with the giant squid. Um, this is in, um, in most, I, I could not think of a way that it explicitly contradicts, um, the source material. Yeah. I was very, worried about this show when I heard that it was announced because I mean well like Julian I've just been a fan of of the book for years and years um, but then I took comfort that nothing that uh, came out in it would dent my my love of the book and um, what it's meant but I was very pleasantly surprised with uh, how faithful the creators were to to the universe actually and and it didn't feel forced or contrived uh, I think that not only I suppose aesthetically but they also maintained a lot of what I think makes the book great which is a lot of the the moral, the moral qualms, the the interesting politics of it all, the 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 quandaries that these characters find themselves in, and not making it a traditional, like Natalie was saying, a traditional superhero uh, show, which which you could do if you were just told, if you just threw this book at someone uh, in a studio and said, "Hey, read this," and then make some kind of sequel to it, you can imagine them botching it really badly, and I. I I was pleasantly surprised with how they approached it. I, I will say I found a little bit grating. Um, uh, you know, there are a lot of callbacks to the comic, but there are also a lot of these sort of little Easter eggs or nods for the you know the folks who are big or fans literal of, eggs of the yes. <laughs> also literal eggs. Um, but there are metaphorical eggs, um, some of which sort of make sense in context. That you know. Um, this this element from the original story would reappear here, um, but some of them seem so forced it it began to feel a little like sort of scary movie where um, this doesn't necessarily make sense. It's just you remember this, right? Oh yeah, you got the, I got that reference. That was fun. Um, you know, in the original, Adrian Vade at one point um, says 
well, you know, you, you think I'm some kind of Republic serial villain. So in this one, Adrian Veidt again sort of denies being a Republic serial villain, but in a context that doesn't really make sense or fit. Um, there are sort of think there's, there's a, a motel that's called the Black Freighter. Um, which is in the original comic, a kind of comic within the comic that is this sort of bloody pirate tale of cannibalism and murder. Um, and you're kind of, well, it doesn't seem likely you would name a motel that. It's, I, I mean, um, there's, it's, it's, it's so peppered with these little, um, kind of nods. And in some cases, um, you sort of wonder, is this just a nod or am I supposed to infer something about the character from it? There's a scene in which, um, Laurie, uh, Laurie Jupetic, Laurie Blake, as uh, she's renamed in, in the, uh, in this show, uh, taking apparently her, her father's name, um, is sort of talking to Dr. Manhattan, her kind of godlike ex-boyfriend, uh, on Mars. Uh, and so she sort of tells a joke and then punctuates it with a verbatim quote from Rorschach's journal in the comic, just, you know, uh, you know, curtain down, everybody laughs, something like that. Um, and so you go, okay, well, Am I supposed to understand this as the writers talking to me as a fan of the comic, dropping a little reference? Or am I supposed to understand this as the character herself making this sort of odd choice to quote Rorschach, who is not a character she had any particular affinity with in the comic? Um, so, you know, it's just one of these weird, is this a nod from the writer or is this a choice I'm supposed to understand as the character um, having chosen to, to, to make this quote, um, and, and I remember being kind of unsure how to read that. I think part of it, too, as like HBO was creating this show, they wanted it to not only appeal to like people who are a fan of the comic, but also to like um, people who either had only seen. So I've only seen the movie and for previous and I'm I'm not a fan as well <laughs> um, but it had to they wanted the show to also appeal to like a new crowd that maybe is not familiar as familiar with the comics so like stuff like that I didn't pick up on until afterwards when I was reading the plethora of articles that are about this show that are talking about the differences and similarities between this trip and the show but I think they did a nice job of appealing the show to like a 2019 crowd in a way that also kind of creates a little nostalgia for those who are fans of the comic strip as well. So like things like that you picked up on. Yeah. Uh, although to, to Julian's point, there's kind of neat little uh, nostalgic reminders or, or Easter eggs. And then there's this kind of repetitive. There, there was a moment in um, the, the the last episode where you know Adrian, who's on Europa, uh, he's he's shot by the uh, the game warden, and he catches the bullet, which is like an obvious you know callback to something from the comic. And that was when I realized well, we're never going to end this. Like literally, every they're just trying to throw this in. Uh, and the trust struggle that I, I had with the show is trying to imagine what it'd be like for people like Natalie who haven't read the book because. I think you're right to say that they, they wanted to make it appealing to because most people haven't read it. Um, but I didn't find what Julian's discussing too distracting. Uh, it was noticeable, but it, I don't think it detracted ultimately. Yeah, that. I should say this was. I think I occasionally thought, okay, you know, you're, you're, you're overdoing it. You're, you're over, trying too hard. Oversalting the pudding a little here, but um, no, on the whole, I loved it. Um, uh, I don't know whether it will sort of hold up as well on repeat. I mean, you know, I've read the comic many, many times and you can keep finding the little things um, and it just remains to be seen whether the same will be true of the show. Uh, but yeah, I, despite my, my kvetches, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Can you uh, 
because you mentioned, you know, for, for a 2019 audience, what, what do you think that, uh, that means? Because some of the commentary that I've been reading, um, there are some people who seem upset about the emphasis on, on race violence, uh, the emphasis on, uh, the supposed political commentary. I can't say that I found any of that remotely distracting or annoying. Um, I thought it actually fit really well. But is that is that what you had in mind when you so, said for yeah, 2019? So that was kind of what I was alluding to a little bit because I had read a quote from Lindelof saying that like he tried to find the equivalent of what had been um, like the nuclear power struggle of the Soviet Union and the U.S. and tried to find the equivalent in 2019. And he was quoted as saying that was undeniably race and policing in America, which I think does it comes across in the show that obviously racism, and we can talk about this more, is plays a very large uh, role as well as like what it means to be black in America or what it means to be black in a superhero comic, um, which is also another thing that um, Lindelof talks a lot about. But I think part of it is that for me watching, I didn't think it was jarring, though I have seen... Um, some critics say that they like took a superhero comic and essentially just made it about race, and that's all that you got from it. I don't think that's necessarily true. Well, what, what um, I so I'm asking this because yeah. the, in in the show there's a, a, a bunch of white supremacists, and they they've taken Warshark as the inspiration, right? They, they right. wear the mask, and they're the white seventh su- cavalry, the seventh cavalry, and they're white supremacists. And certainly in the book, the character is. On the right, yeah, and right. <laughs> um, has had strong views about morality and about uh, people's personal uh, debaucheries and and what they get up to. Uh, I think some people might say it's not clear that he would have endorsed like whatever the uh, the cult that he seemingly inspired, right? I mean, I, mean, I, that- I would say in retrospect, kind of like one of the things the show made me realize is that um, race is a weird sort of lacuna in. So Rorschach is painted as this. I mean, you know, not not like a, a decent conservative, but as a as a as a crazy right winger um, with you know sort of borderline uh, you know fascist views, uh, who sort of um, I mean, he's sort of dismissive about uh, the idea that um, another character, the comedian, was 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 essentially a, an attempted rapist. Um, he says, "Well, I, you know, the moral lapses of patriotic Americans." Um, I mean, this is not an attractive character uh, in, in in a lot of ways, um, but it, that's almost this sort of oddly missing thing um, is that you you don't get this sense that that is part of the constellation. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, race doesn't play nearly as big a role, of course, in in the book. Uh, the and and of course the end of the book right uh, i think you know the journal is sent to some you know not the equivalent of national review or anything i mean some really nutcase you know, uh magazine uh but what's interesting about Rorschach, of course at the end of the book i think is uh he he's only destroyed for making what i i would argue was actually the correct moral choice which is you should tell the truth about um something um, that big and atrocious. I don't want to give too much away to people, but right. <laughs> you know, there's a, that's actually a moment like, at the, which causes his death where he makes the right choice. Um, well, I, I would just say in terms of the, the, the shift, I think one of the interesting choices, or I think I, I assume was this is a deliberate choice, is um, there's a – so in, in the universe of Zoe, let's just, I guess, set this up for folks who have not seen it yet. Um, this is the present day, but in this sort of alternate timeline where, uh, at least in Oklahoma, um, where there's this, again, this sort of white supremacist group that have taken on, uh, the mask of this, this dead, uh, vigilante, um, uh, cops wear masks after this event called the White Knight, where a lot of cops were, uh, slain by this white supremacist group. Um, and so, yeah, there's this sort of weird, 
almost incongruous combination of restrictions where they have to sort of um, call in and justify to have their guns released in the car, something you see in one of the, the early scenes, um, but also to protect them. In theory, they're, they're allowed to wear masks. Um, so one of the police officers is named Red Scare, who is this kind of um, – is there almost as comic relief, but he's got this sort of thick Russian accent and is um, kind of aggressively communist. Uh, and I think it's their sort of nod to the, the, the Cold War milieu of the original was sort of absolutely central to it. The kind of looming threat of uh, great power nuclear conflict is the sort of essential context for that. Um, and so that character who's you know, crops up in that first episode, I think, is their way of saying, um, yeah, this is not that, you know, we recognize that this is not that world anymore, that the, um, you know, this idea of this threat of mutual, mutual nuclear annihilation of the Soviets is no longer, um, you know, something as this insidious threat. You've got a guy in the police force who's a, you know, a, a communist Russian and everyone just sort of thinks it's funny. <laughs> So going back to the larger racism question that the show presents, I think it, it was obviously intentional that we started in the 1921 Oklahoma massacre. Typically, and at least in history textbooks today, it's not it's not typically given that much light. It's often ignored. And I think it was very poignant, at least from my perspective, also to get me to keep watching the show that they started on an event like that. Why do you think they did that? I seem to remember reading somewhere that uh, Lindelof read a Ta-Nehisi Coates article about the massacre, and that was a, a, an inspiration for it. And uh, I mean, it's a good pick because it's it's an event that you know, I wish more people knew more about. Uh, and it also uh, was the the genesis of one of the most fascinating uh, plot lines of the entire series, right? Which is a story about against what you know hooded justice and like how he he got started and uh some of his motivations and and qualms and uh, you know there were concerns i think from a lot of people early on that this that this was going to dominate the the entire series i just didn't feel that way at all watching it i thought that was done really well uh never never felt um too over the head about it uh and frankly more people who know about that incident the better and you know i mean i think they're they're setting up a kind of classic origin story for uh, you don't recognize, uh, you know, in that first episode that that's what it is, but they are um, setting up the kind of hero origin story of one of the characters. So that's a kind of classic comic opening. This is the, um, I mean, and it is, right, I mean, sort of the, the, the classic superhero kind of, uh, uh, you know, archetype, right, is an orphan um, for a bunch of reasons. So, you know, Kal-El, Batman, um, in a, in a different way, Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Um, so what you have here is the, you know, the kind of Kal-El rocketing to earth, um, except it's, uh, you know, or the, or the Bruce Wayne watching his parents killed, but here it is, um, a, uh, you know, a, a young black child sort of left orphaned by this essentially white, white race riot. Um, and and that as the kind of defining uh defining moment. So I think that's that's just an echo of this sort of classic superhero trope where um you know how how is the what is this sort of scarring moment that um that, that sets the hero on his path and it's not, you know, kind of a random individual crime, you know, as it would be with Bruce Wayne, but um but structural crime in a sense, right? Um uh and and so I think that that's probably a deliberate kind of reflection of, you know, the kind of the the, per, the iconic kind of pearls in the alleyway of the Wayne murder. Right. There's a lot of and this goes back to a lot of 
uh, of Lindelof's other works is he specifically writes about like the effects of trauma on people, whether it's lost or the leftovers is a really, really big example. And I think he ties that into the superhero archetype really, really well. But in ways that uh, I'm, a lot of people have picked up on but aren't necessarily mentioned in other superhero stories where this, there's this sort of – you mentioned Echoes. Uh, it, it sort of uh, comes to the surface in this nod towards like epigenetics and the like – passing down of trauma through generations, whether that's with Lady True and her mother and reliving the memories in Vietnam or whether it's uh, uh, Angela Abar's like taking of the nostalgia and reliving the memories of of Will Reeves and something like that. So I, I, I was just kind of wondering if there was anything that stood out to you about that, the sort of discussion of trauma uh Specifically because with superheroes, it sort of – it sets them on their path and sort of determines where they go further. And I think specifically when you get start getting to like Dr. Manhattan's story towards the end of the series, sort of what causes you and spurs you to move forward is this interesting sort of wrinkle in in the sort of archetype that it – because it seems like it's almost deterministic at times. So something that surprised me about the show that I suppose is somewhat related is uh, that it's revealed that that Adrian is um, on Europa at least initially um, consensually, right? He he asks to to be sent there, and Doctor Manhattan sends him off there, uh, and and that's in part because. Adrian seems, you know, tortured in some way and, you know, uh, to be, to be struggling. And that's certainly something you don't, it's been a while since I've read the book, but I don't, it doesn't come across as that kind of character in the way that a lot of the other characters have, you know, real violence in their background or, or serious personal conflict. He's, he's on the surface, not a particularly, not someone you would intuitively feel very sorry for. You know, he's very wealthy. He's successful. He's famous. Uh, and then in the TV show, he, he asked to be exiled. Um, which probably doesn't go as he planned, uh, but that uh, that that your, your question reminded me of at least that line. So I think I think uh, one interesting example here is uh, look at Wade, aka Looking Glass, who is set up um, as the show's sort of equivalent to Rorschach in the original. Um, in one of the very first scenes in which you see was well, in the first scene you see Looking Glass, he's got this this sort of reflective shiny mask pulled up um, in a way that we see Rorschach initially. Um, it's interesting. I think this is uh, the, sort of the translation of the 2D comic into uh, – uh, into the uh, television medium, you have Rorschach, who's always got a Rorschach blot that's constantly shifting. So he's got a face that's sort of symmetrical um, across its plane, uh, uh, shifts to a looking glass, which creates a symmetry, right, sort of perpendicular to uh, to its plane. Uh, so symmetry kind of um, reflected against the the surface rather than uh, along it. Um, and we even see in in one again one of the first looking glass scenes, um, he's in this sort of racist detector booth that's sort of <laughs> right. just like right. kind of hyper Orwellian version of one of those implicit bias tests that's yeah. so supposed to detect whether you have, um, you know, a hostility toward particular racial groups. Um, and it's sort of projecting all these images and then we sort of get this, uh, I mean, almost excessive sort of freeze of a Rorschach blot, uh, 
projected over uh, over his sort of reflective uh, sort of lycra mask. Um, but so in the fifth episode, um, and this is interesting because in the fifth issue of the comics, uh, which I think is called Fearful Symmetry, it's sort of very much centered on Rorschach. Um, and that issue is itself um, sort of perfectly symmetrical, right? So sort of every page, uh, so the first and the, and the last page are sort of perfect reflections of each other and have the same thematic content and, and so on um, into the center, which is this sort of big splash page. Uh, the fifth episode, which I think is a, uh, called a, a little fear, little fear of lightning, um, is really centered on Wade in the same way the issue is centered on on Rorschach, and uh, sort of begins with, in a sense, his origin story. Uh, it shows so essentially he's a kind of young religious missionary, is in Hoboken, I think, when this. Um, <laughs> this telepathic squid is sort of <laughs> teleported into New York and kills millions of people. But so you sort of follow him where he's kind of dragged into a fun house full of, you know, mirrors, a, a hall of mirrors uh, by this girl who's ultimately intends to sort of play this prank on him and take his clothing and, and leave him sort of sexually humiliated. And it's at this moment that the, um, the, the the disaster happens and uh, essentially everyone around him or very nearly uh, is killed uh, as a result he's protected by the 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 reflective surfaces that he's uh he's inside of um and that episode has not a sort of symmetrical uh, structure but uh an uh, uh a kind of repeat or echo structure where the second half sort of Echoes the the first half, um, and so you see this sort of initial trauma um, that has led Wade to be this sort of intensely paranoid uh, person. He's um, like a doomsday collector, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's a serious prepper. He's yeah. yeah he's um, right. He's clearly lives in kind of constant fear of a repeat of this disaster, and then. At the midpoint of the episode, essentially, something similar happens. as a, a, a Woman he's sexually interested in, um, but then sort of sees something amiss, thinks, hints that she may be associated with the 7th Cavalry, um, follows her uh, back to their headquarters um, and sort of discovers, oh, yet again, I've been kind of humiliated and, and duped um, um, and, and sort of used. Um, but then – essentially has the truth about the disaster exposed. This was not actually an alien invasion. This was a plot by Adrian Vate to unite the world and prevent nuclear war by creating this sort of fictional external enemy. Um, so it's this interesting point where you get – you finally get the origin story and then in a sense you get a kind of resolution of the trauma in the sense that this thing he's been dreading essentially his entire adult life – um, and this in this sort of reflected moment um, recognizes as a fiction. But he doesn't uh, – but the, the final few minutes of that episode are him chucking a lot of these – the emergency right. gear right, right out into the trash. Uh, but then he comes back for it, right? It, mm-hmm. right it, so even even knowing the truth is he's so – this is such an ingrained part of his – So um, lingering. Yeah. Uh, and of course the, the ultimate irony of him, I guess, like you know, wearing the Rorschach mask at the end, uh, the final episode uh, is – is nicely done. Yeah. Landry, when you asked that question originally, the first thing I thought of, like, when you're talking about trauma or, like, stuff that's in your past, I thought it was very interesting, not only, like, the whole existence of the nostalgia pill um, that Lady True had 
derived, um, but also that the there's a center and they like kind of paint it like a museum of sorts that you can go and like look up your history of your family. So we see a scene where um, Angela Abar is trying to figure out if Will Reeves is um, how Will Reeves is related to her, if he's like a crazy whack job who just claims to be her grandfather, etc. And they go to this museum where you can like look up your whole family history, and then also um, it comes up with a tree or like a hologram. Yeah, it like renders in three dimensions this like physical tree to represent your genetic. Right, and I, I just thought it was interesting that. In a sense, Angela Abar was like going to seek out her trauma almost. And like that obviously manifests when she takes Willary's nostalgia pills because then she like lives through his whole life, which obviously gives her insight to what um, is going on in the larger picture. But that's just kind of, I thought the existence of a museum or whatever, a, a bank like that type of memories was interesting and in how it contributes to the trauma of in her life. It's not outside the realm of possibility that in 10 years we might have the 23 and me like <laughs> building where you could go yeah. and have right. some sort of thing erupting out of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I found that whole episode just so well done. Great. The, flash, but, the one where yeah. she relives. Yeah, that one was my where favorite she re- episode. It was yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, it was also very creepy. Like there was this oh, kind yeah. of just persistent sense of unease throughout the entire thing. Uh, uh, but I would. It's probably my favorite episode. I don't know. Uh, it was instantly written by Cord Jefferson, or co-written at least by Cord Jefferson, who, uh, who I used to. He was a, a journalist in DC, um, maybe ten ten years ago. Oh wow! Um, okay. So I was sort of surprised to see that name pop up and go. Oh, God, Cord is he? He's writing for TV now, I guess. Um, Doing a good job at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was definitely one of my favorite episodes, and I also I, it. After I watched all of them, it's it still stuck out to me more as like not like fill. There wasn't any filler content there. It was all like it all kept me like excited. Um, so the the next question I was just thinking of while we were talking about this, what do you think is the larger narrative about trust in the law throughout the Watchmen series, uh, sp- specifically through the TV show, not um, necessarily the comic, because there's a lot of conflicting um messages going on at least i think in that it was a little bit more hazy um so what do you guys think any references to trust in law i know obviously there's a lot of vigilantes so i would say i don't know if, if you guys would agree but to me watchmen i think the book and, and the show is is actually about uh how institutions political and non will can let you down yeah. uh, and that uh, you can't that so it's not so there's the government right and it runs the police and it's there's politicians and they screw up the world and there's police brutality and, and that that that's certainly a part of uh, the series but it's also that uh families can let you down uh religious institutions uh it's not just i i don't come away from watchmen with an explicit like libertarian message necessarily. I mean, there's certainly, uh, you, you can, you can try to look at it or, or read it through that lens, uh, and that's one way to do it. But, uh, I think Alan Moore, uh, especially in, you know, is a skeptic of authority figures, political and non. Uh, and, and I, I think that comes through in the series quite well. Uh, it's, it's a, so it's not just a, uh, political authority problem in the series. I think that, you know, uh, Something that's true of the the you know the original comic, which is that uh, it works sort of blowing up your expectations about um, sort of who the heroes and the villains might be. Um, so sort of you, the comic you have kind of 
one of the heroes turns out to be the villain, but is he the villain? Because at least arguably he's maybe saved the world uh, at the end by doing this sort of incredibly horrible thing, um, which maybe breaks down your sort of idea that it's actually sort of neatly sortable. Uh, the world is sort of neatly categorizable that way. Um, the very So the very first episode of the show starts with um, – and this is something Moore did also, right? A kind of film within the film. It's a film reel of an old Western. And there's someone who, right, who's, who's coded as the hero, a guy in, right, dressed in uh, all white with a white hat on a white horse, yep. being chased by a hooded guy, all in black on a black horse. So this is coded as villain chasing the hero. Um, right. That person is sort of lassoed. Um, and then. You know, he's on the, as he's on the ground, there's, there's a church nearby and the parishioners kind of pour out and go, what's going on? That's the sheriff. And, and then the, the, the guy in black pulls off his hood and it's the, uh, a black U.S. marshal, um, who has actually exposed the sheriff as, uh, himself, a, a, you know, a crook. Um, and, you know, sort of somewhat unrealistically, the white townspeople are all delighted to, and to immediately accept this. Cut immediately, right? So the very next scene, um, is, a white guy, this guy turns out to, we don't know this at the time, but he turns out to be a member of the 7th Carol, who is sort of ironically listening to hip hop and seems to be very into it. Um, so gets pulled over by a masked black police officer. And that initial interaction, right, very much has the masked officer as the sort of dominant intimidating figure mm-hmm. and the, you know, the white driver as kind of cowed and, you know, as potentially maybe, uh, you know, fearing uh, abuse of some kind or mistreatment um and then it sort of flips and it turns he 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 en- ends up murdering uh the police officer uh in in the mask um and there's just sort of that is a sort of theme that repeats um right by the end of the episode you have another sheriff killed um you think this is one of the good guys uh and Later events and, and, you know, by I think the second or third episode, um, you're sort of starting to question that. Um, so there's a, a lot of points in the show where, um, what they're doing is sort of trying to keep you off balance yeah, in terms of, catch you. Yeah, yeah, being, being super certain about, um, you know, who the, um, you know who is who is admirable or 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 heroic or who might be um, sort of frightening. You know, there's even a moment where around the midpoint where they and they can't really. I mean, so the problem is that they they can't really create this much ambiguity with a, a group that is just overtly a white supremacist group. No one, no one, no viewer. Well, very few viewers <laughs> are going to look at that and think, well, there's some ambiguity about whether they're um, sympathetic or not. Um, but there is a point where you know there's a suggestion that at least some of them may not. That that may not be the motive of all of them. That in fact, some of them are trying to expose um, this sort of fiction that's been perpetrated. Um, where the world has sort of been kept in fear by this fiction of an alien attack thirty years ago, um, and they want to sort of bring this to light, or at least that's implied that that may be the case. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that kind of rug pull uh, happening. Um, so I think part of it is. As as with the comic, maybe um, an attempt to uh, kind of drive people out of feeling certain that they have identified uh, heroes and villains. And I think that really is sort of comes about. And I think I don't know if it was an intentional nod, but I I 
a lot of people have sort of been bringing up this interview that Alan Moore did in 2017 with some Brazilian media outlet where he basically identified and, and stated pretty much outright that he sees very much the state of superhero media, especially in the context of like the Avengers universe and all of that going on becoming so big in the last handful of years that it's still that type of media right now still very much represents white supremacist dreams of of a master race and in doing so he sort of he's he sort of sees like you could really imagine the first superhero movie as he stated dw griffith's birth of a nation and and, and that's sort of his very alan moore <laughs> outlook on what like superheroes represent in this cultural context and i was curious what you guys thought of that in particular because it is it's a very bold statement well i think um, they're also making a bold statement in the show that you have a largely african-american cast right um, mind you i thought they did awesome and the and i think that is why they had so many rug pull moments as you quote unquote said the just the cast that they pulled together allowed us to have those unexpected moments where like the how many superheroes are used most all superheroes i'm used to seeing are typically white males and that just wasn't the story that was told here i mean even if you look at dr manhattan he's a blue <laughs> he's a blue guy uh with our blue god so to speak so i think that definitely lended itself but i don't think i don't think lindelof was thinking about alan moore's quote when he was casting this perhaps but i mean it's essential always hesitant to correct alan moore and anything to do with comics (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and looking at his own work i don't you know i don't know if he's right about this look um yeah i don't i I, I mean i think you know if you look at the 40s for example uh you know you can if you look at sort of comics around World War II, um, you know a lot of that stuff is indeed incredibly racist, just on its face. Um, I I think, but yeah, white supremacy. I don't know. I, I think there's a, a slightly different thing going on in comics, which is there's a kind of inherent, you might even say, an inherent neoconservatism to them, or or an, there there is an inherent fascism of a kind to the super. And I say this as a a longtime fan of superhero comics, but Sort of intrinsic to the idea of the comic, at least when it's not a limited series like Watchmen, when it's something that's got to run for indefinitely and you got to sort of not break the toys and hand them off to another writer. Um, the inherent idea has to be, right, that, uh, a small number of very special people with incredible power, um, are necess- uh, uh, that is unaccountable, right? They usually are hidden. Right. They're not, they're not, uh, accountable to the public in any way. They're not, no one elected them. Um, no one is, you know, they're not, they're not subject to a civil suit if they violate someone's rights, uh, civil rights. Um, but, uh, these sort of special, incredibly powerful, unaccountable individuals are sort of necessary to keep everyone safe. That ultimately the kind of ordinary mechanisms of peacekeeping are not enough that in the face of extraordinary threats, um, you need these incredibly powerful people. And sometimes you have a problem, which is the bad people get too much power. That's supervillains. Um, but ultimately, you know, the solution to that is good people with moral clarity having as much or more power, um, and you can trust that those people 
uh, well, again, you know, in the mainstream series, not in like little critique books that sort of spin off, um, will use that. So Batman will rough people up and never get a search warrant, but he will ultimately never kill an innocent person or, you know, very, you know, It'll be a one-off kind of thing. Superman will not, you know, unless it's a Zack Snyder movie, is not going <laughs> to kill innocent people. Um, all of this sort of devastation that these battles wreak did not, you know, he never kind of goes crazy or goes over the line. Um, and so there's a, you know, because just because the story needs to continue, and you, you know, you can't ultimately have Superman right decide he's a god and and start wringing people's necks. Um, the inherent message has to be that at some level, if you, as long as you find the right good people, right, um, incredible unaccountable power is right this sort of boon. Um, so there is, I think, an inherent fascism to the superhero genre, just sort of that uh, often unintentional, right? The people writing these things are often liberal, um, but the kind of conventions of the genre almost necessitate um, this idea that I, I do think has. Fascist elements, in a sense. Your your comment reminded me that uh, in, in the nostalgia episode, there actually is a moment where uh, Hooded Justice is revealed in a in a comic, and it's him beating up a black guy. If I recall, right? There's like uh, just an, like Julian was of the time, like uh, just an explicitly racist <laughs> um, photo. Uh, sorry, poster. I should say poster. Um, that uh, I, I guess might be a hint at you know them trying to context. Um, where where they're coming from, but you're you're, you're right, Julian. I think that uh, the the problem that a lot of comics have, I think, is there's a there's a big problem, and what's the solution to it? Well, a, a powerful person who has like unique abilities and skill sets, and they can solve it. Uh, so yeah, it is it is potentially problematic. I don't know if, I mean, Alan Moore never exactly pulls his punches in these interviews, and he seems to like to stir. Uh, I think at least in the context, if he if he was, to, I didn't read the interview, and uh, I. So I don't know the broader context of it, but if he was talking explicitly about the Marvel universe, was that that I, seems like a, it wasn't that he was explicitly. I think that was an example that got yeah. brought up, but he okay. was he yeah, was mostly yeah. speaking about that sort of that that movement and that type of movie that was what going he, on in like, recent years. To as, like mainstream superheroes, right? Um, and specifically, sort of outlined, he saw them as it, it, particularly superheroes and those types of movies fulfill a certain purpose for younger viewers but the recent movement of like what he sees as adults sort of failing to engage with real world problems in a practical and adult way he is what he sees these films as as just like it not even just pure escapism but the a, a failure to negotiate with real world problems practically There's a weird uh, – speaking of Julian's comment on neoconservatism, so uh, something that – the part of the alternate history, right, is that Dr. Manhattan ends the war in Vietnam because uh, Nixon sends him over and he just, they quickly surrender after being zapped and bombed. And then for in, in the rest of the series, you're left with this question with this omniscient being that there's still a lot of bad stuff that happens in the world, right? And he was totally willing to sort of say yes, sir, to Mr. Nixon and he went over to Vietnam and ended – you know, Killing tons of people, uh, and yet seems uh, very absent from all the other horrors that are still going on in the world. You know, the war in Vietnam's over, but there's still plenty of bad things happening. And something I I thought was interesting about the show is that uh, they they decided, I think, not to resolve a lot of the moral ambiguities people are left with with Doctor Manhattan. They don't make a definitive answer one way or the other about why he makes some of the decisions. And uh, that was something I was 
sort of afraid of going into it that they were going to make Dr. Manhattan into a particular kind of hero uh, and – I think they remain pretty loyal to to the original source material. Well, the kind of the impression that I got was that almost that Dr. Manhattan like let us down, like he didn't do he didn't do enough, so to speak. So one of the I think it was in the last episode, if not the episode before they were talking about, um, I believe it was Adrian and yeah, it was it was it was the last episode. Adrian's talking and he um, is they're talking about Dr. Manhattan and he had just died. Spoiler alert. Um, And they were saying, well, oh, he didn't do enough. Like considering his powers, he could have solved X, Y and Z. And like that kind of left me with the impression that he, not that he was lazy, but that he cho- either chose not to use his powers, maybe because he was fearful of them, them, the abuse of them, or that he thought maybe I, I don't know. Because like there's like you just alluded to, there are so many other things that supposedly happened in this time period that he just wasn't engaged with. But even so, it doesn't have to be wars necessarily. But the, the, it's a good thing we have the book here because I might want to flip. But there's there's a scene in the book where. Uh, Dr. Manhattan is in Vietnam with the comedian and a pregnant Vietnamese lady walks in and it's revealed that, uh, the comedian has, you know, impregnated this young woman and, and he doesn't care about her or his unborn child. Uh, and, uh, he murders her in this bar in Vietnam and Dr. Manhattan's right there and the comedian, I forget the, but says that you could have, you know, turned the bullets into dust, some, something to that effect. And it's, it's a very jarring part of, of the book and, uh, but it's also something that's never quite, at least to me, like, isn't resolved in a satisfying way that Dr. Manhattan can stand in a bar while someone murders an innocent person, uh, and yet be like morally certain in, in other contexts. Sorry. I mean, so, you know, the, the, the out they have is they establish at one point that, um, so Dr. Manhattan in the comic has this sort of very strange, and in the show, um, this sort of strange perception of time. He's sort of a, a, a kind of determinist. He, he is, he perceives, uh, all, sort of moments of his time stream simultaneously, almost as though reviewing them on a comics page. Um, and so you know, there's a piece of dialogue in in the comic where it's like, so you knew Kennedy was going to be killed, but you didn't do anything. Why didn't you do anything? He says, well, because I don't, because I did, I, because I don't do anything. Um, I, you know, I, because I knew that in my future, I don't, I don't stop it um, because that's the future I knew and I can't. Uh, you know, essentially, I'm a puppet too. I just see the strings. Um, he is, you know, in a sense, a watchman in the sense of being, um, you know, being a, cl- a clockwork uh, being who is just aware of living in, in a deterministic universe. Um, so that's sort of their out um, for him. In, th- in this case, you have him literally well aware that he is going to be kind of captured and disintegrated, and um, but sort of allowing it to happen because that's what he knows occurs. It's something you see with uh, a lot of. Uh, omniscient being. So, so it's when people talk about God, right? There's, well, when, when good thing happens, it's because, well, God's great and loves us. But when, when bad things happen, it's because God's mysterious. And, you know, yeah. they actually, <laughs> they have a much, a, a bird's eye view of, of all of this. And, uh, that never seems to quite work with, uh, Dr. Manhattan. Though. I mean, there's, because he's not an all, sorry, go ahead. I was, you know, I mean, one of the things I thought was interesting about the comic is that, that he, uh, you know, more did say, you know, it always seems implausible that you've got in comics you have these sort of incredible beings and this sort of Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four Kratings are super science and yet the rest of the world looks pretty much the same as the world that the reader is living in. It doesn't really seem like uh, all of these incredible uh, you know, intellects and beings have altered things much. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
deliberately in the comics, no, a lot of things did change because of Dr. Manhattan. There's electric cars because of uh, he's able to synthesize batteries for um, uh, for electric cars you know, long before this is sort of feasible in, in our world. Um, and indeed, at the very beginning of uh, the pilot of the show, you see a, you know, the, this trucker. Um, you know, driving some lettuce is, but has like a, a battery gauge in the truck. So this is like an old pickup. Um, but it is clearly electric powered. Um, so, but one of the interesting things that comes out of that and you know, the kind of the cop out, and why doesn't Superman solve all these problems in comics is very often, well, he's got to let us sort of make our own way because we've become <laughs> dependent on him. And, um, you know, that always seems, well, surely there's still, you know, stuff you could f- fix. Um, but, you know, th- and this is sort of very subtle, but in the show, uh, there's this weird disconnect in the in sort of the level of technology. So you see in some places, oh, they've got these holograms, and you know. But on the other hand, everyone's still using pagers. No one seems to have cell phones. There are right. There's a yeah. bunch of ways in right. You don't ever see a smartphone. Um, there are a bunch of ways in which technology is more advanced, presumably because of people like Adrian Veidt and, and and Dr. Manhattan. But there are other ways in which it seems, um, you know, kind of stuck in the at a kind of early 90s level. Um, I think maybe the implication is supposed to be um, when Dr. Manhattan left, um, sort of technology had become sort of so dependent on him being able to sort of magic stuff into existence um, that – uh, a lot of developments that in our world we take for granted haven't happened. I think one thing that you were getting at uh, previously when you were talking about like understanding his powers as as a god is and uh, Angela points this out in the second to last episode. She directly asks him, "So is this like a Zeus thing, where you come down?" And so you have to remember that he is not God, capital G, all powerful creator in this way, but he might be this sort of, you know, mythological Zeus-like figure who is has the powers I, of I, a deity, I, I, but, I, but comes down and is viewed and told stories about in an imperfect I, way. I thought a, a, a great little bit of business in that episode is um, so. Eventually, Dr. Manhattan takes the form of Calabar, who is uh, Angela's husband. Before that, he's John Osterman. They never show his face as Osterman. Um, You see him from behind, and then you see he's actually put on a Dr. Manhattan mask to go in and talk to her. So all these scenes where where, um, you you essentially never see the original Dr. Manhattan face, which I thought was a nod to the convention in old passion plays and then early – uh, films in which Jesus Christ is depicted, where they thought it was sort of sacrilegious to have a human, you know, a ordinary actor depict Jesus. So it was always you always shot it in a way, whether the face wasn't shown or there was a mask, um, because it would be kind of blasphemous to have a human acting uh, acting as a god. I think the ancient Greeks had similar protocols for wearing yeah. masks during plays. Um, right. Well, well, it's uh, the disease thing. I think is slightly. Uh, better analogy than more sort of monotheistic God, right? Because, you know, and so that that was a, an interesting pickup because the ancient Roman and Greek gods were had tons of human fallibilities, right? And uh, they got jealous and they got greedy. And uh, something that's, that's in the book that's really fascinating, I think, is that, that Dr. Manhattan is uh, persuadable in that uh, Silk Spectre, like, it's, you know, sent to Mars where he's saying, Look, the 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 number of particles in a living body and a dead body are the same. Like, why did I care? Why do I care about any of this? And she actually does manage to persuade him to to care about humanity, uh, which 
it's good because you have this character that is incredibly powerful and can, you know, teleport and be at all places. Uh, and despite all that power, you could still persuade him through a good conversation. And uh, so it's not like a, a a vindictive god that's just made up their mind and is just acting, uh, which makes him one of the more fascinating characters. Uh, but I agree with you. I, I was surprised that we never saw the original face. Uh, and I think a lot of people found the aesthetic of uh, the appearance because I, I sort of got, OK, he's disguised himself as this person on Earth. But then there's that physical form, but blue. Uh, it doesn't go back to the Osterman look. It's a, uh, but I think it worked. It was um, yeah. an interesting choice, though. Yeah. So the I kind of wanted we alluded to this earlier, but I kind of wanted to get to the egg reference. Um, so, <laughs> which uh, so I was reading a lot this morning. Um, we're recording the day after the finale aired, so this will come out in the new year. But I was reading this morning that Lindelof wanted the egg reference to be like the smiley face of the comics. Um, so we'll get, we get our first egg reference in, I believe, the first episode. And, um, and we see eggs used to make a smiley face. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and then, uh, uh, and it was like a, a little less literal, kind of just playing at it like, um, Will Reeves was eating a hard boiled egg and like, but then towards the end of the season, we got a few more big hints. Obviously, they use the chicken and the egg reference, um, which everyone has heard a, a bunch of times at this point. And then we'll have, we have, have the scene where um, Angela is confronting her husband who we, she knows is Dr. Manhattan and they're getting in this fight and she's telling him about how the cavalry knows his existence and their eggs coming out of the fridge and then they just drop and we see them all uh, like splat on the floor. But then we fast forward to the last scene of the show of the season and Angela is going to like it, she's like. We get like the relief from like the big uh, climax of the last last show, and she's like getting gathering her kids, bringing them back home, cleaning up the house, and she goes to clean up the eggs and finds that there's one egg left. Um, so I was kind of wondering, how do you think that? How do you guys think that metaphor, that symbol, played? For the show, a very very light hand, just not heavy handed <laughs> at all. I thought towards the end there, I was like, "Oh, you're just going right for it." Right. Okay. <laughs> well, the the part of the show where I th- the penultimate episode where there's uh, Doctor Manhattan, you know, standing on the pool, and be, as Julian was saying, he's observing all time at once. So he's he's simultaneously having the conversation with Angela's grandfather and the conversation with her uh, when and- they first met, right? When Dr. Manhattan and Reed meet for the first time, he's simultaneously having the conver- – well, he's having all these at once. Anyway, uh, but he's you – know, <laughs> It was when, So to Angela's perspective, like to, for Angela, she's talking to Dr. Manhattan while he's also talking to her grandfather meeting, right? And 20 years earlier. 20 years earlier. Yeah. <laughs> and there's uh, the resolution of the, the paradox, right? Dr. Manhattan says the resolution is they all happen at once. Like what came first, the chicken or the egg? And he right. says it happens all at once, which uh, – I don't know. Um, it's been a year since I studied logic. I don't know if that quite passes, <laughs> but, uh, but it was, uh, I, I thought it was, um, I thought it was well done. Like, like other things, I, I think a lot of people could, I think rewatching it, I might come to the conclusion it was overdone, um, and a little on the head, but watching it for the first time going through, I thought it yeah. was, it was, yeah. it was fine. I agree. Yeah. Talking about it out loud, I say it was, you know, heavy handed. In the moment, I did take my glasses off and almost throw them up in the air, and I was like, they got me. They right. did. <laughs> well, I think, and too, without giving too much away, at the end when she had the whole egg again, I was like, oh darn, I missed that from earlier. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, I should have seen that. I should have been better. 
All right. Was there any other things that people wanted to hit on or? I mean, I could talk about Watchmen all day. I don't know. What, ha- um, what happened to, to Grease Boy or whatever? The guy who greased himself up and slid into oh, the down the drain. Sewer. What happened to that? So if you, uh, the website for the show uh, strongly intimates that it is the um, – is it's Lori Blake's assistant, oh, okay. the kind of nebbishy FBI agent who is uh, that was my theory when I saw race. him. He has a similar build. I just was like, it seemed like they're gonna drop him in for one scene like that, it is and then weird just because it's just in, never paid off internal to the show. It's just what what is going on here, mm-hmm. and that's just sort of left hanging. Um, but there's actually, I, I we're saying a lot of interesting things are kind of intimated and then left hanging. Yeah, this, the setup here suggests the second season is certainly possible. So maybe these are things that come back. Mm-hmm. But um, so Laurie Blake, um, is, so in in the show she's uh, Laurie Jupeshik, um, or in the comic rather, um, and that's obviously her, her birth name here too. Um, at the end of the comic, she is with Dan Dryberg, Night Owl, uh, and they have taken the name uh, Sam and Sandra Hollis, um, and are kind of. Retiring incognito. Um, so as this starts, one, she's taken the name of her father, Edward Blake, the comedian, which is um, a little surprising. She's not someone she seemed to have any particular affection for in the in the comics. Um, certainly not someone you would expect her to, to take the uh, take the name of. Um, it's intimated that um, in one scene that uh, Dan Dryberg is in jail. Uh, or in prison, uh, the, the Senator Joe Keen Jr. makes an allusion to, uh, you know, maybe being able to to free her caged owl or something like that. Um, so there's just a, a lot of little stuff that's like, oh yeah, where where is Dryberg? Where is Night Owl? Um, a lot of little things are kind of nodded at here, but not particularly resolved. Um, both. You know, pointing back to what happens between the comics and here, uh, and and of course things like Lube Boy. Um, so uh, you know, a, a lot is sort of left to play with and puzzle over. I forgot about him. Well, that was just so towards the end, but yeah. I don't think it's <laughs> when you realize that it they just slipped, to... slipped your mind. So. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, there uh, it is. <laughs> you consider, you know, they had to, to write it. They had to corner off a whole section for a street and get the lighting and the crew and the <laughs> costume and they had to do fittings and blah, 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 blah just it's for this. HBO, right? Yeah, for this, like, 30-second clip. Uh, yeah, money. Must have done going. it for something. And what about uh, uh, Cal and Angela's son, the adopted son that apparently has powers also? So there, yeah, so there's a scene in this, uh, the first episode where he's playing with some elevated toy and right. I – Maybe I just had a long day or something. I just thought that in the future they made cool toys <laughs> and that they were just like a nice, cool, magnetic, you know, neat little play on Lego. I don't know. Right. But um, so, but you're right now that we know how the whole thing ends. Maybe there is more to it than that. But I just thought it was a cool toy. Right. And especially because you start with his, he, he and Angela and the very, very, their relationship at the beginning is sort of what starts the whole thing. He's watching her give the sort of bring your parent to work day speech in class. He obviously has very strong feelings about uh, uh, like uh, about race in particular. He sort of tries to defend his mom in front of this kid that asks if she had received money for her bakery via redfordation. Yeah. So I thought their relationship was really, really interesting. And I just I, I wanted some more of that. So I there's a part of me that doesn't want them to touch it for a season two because I I I don't want it to ruin it. But I am curious about some things. I honestly I kind of hope they as much as I love the show, I hope they 
don't do a season two. And I know they very much left it open. Um, we won't say exactly what happened at the end, but they very much left it open. Um, and obviously, it's gotten a lot of positive feedback. Well, it's got a lot of positive feedback, and people enjoyed the show, and they thought he, Lindelof, did an exceptionally well uh Good job, just especially with the topics that he chose to cover as well. But I just feel like there. I don't know. I'm one of those people that always think a show gets ruined when it, like, it goes to a next season. And I just kind of I could see there are so many avenues that this show could get ruined. A lot of uh, well, I don't want to name names, but a lot of shows like I think suffer from they've been going a while and then there are so many loose ends. They feel the need to like put everything into a bow by Game the end. Thank you. Yeah. I was uh, going to so say name them. Right. So, but there are, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with like, a good story doesn't have to answer every question a reader or a viewer might have. Right. And uh, I think Watchmen season one is a good example of something that would be really fine left alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's pl- you, if you want to do season two, you totally could. Uh, but I'm satisfied with it as a cohesive you know, one season of good television. Thanks for listening. If for some reason you enjoyed the Snyder film version of Watchmen more than Lindelof's spin on the world, be sure to let us know on Twitter. You can follow us at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by Tess Terrible and me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.